Next, we're looking at a new book from Four Courts Press, The Irish Defence Forces, 1922-2022, to Servants of the Nation. This comprehensive history appeared at a time when the Defence Forces are very much in the news, though not for positive reasons after the Independent Review Group highlighted allegations of past and current misogyny and abuse. Over the decades, the Defence Forces have remained something of an enigma to the public, one of the most frequently discussed yet least understood elements of the public sector and of Irish foreign policy. Yet, the Defence Forces have a long history whose origins lie in the formation of the Irish Volunteers in 1913 and the political and military revolution that preceded the emergence of the Irish Free State in 1922. Earlier, I spoke to the author of the book, Dr Owen Kinsella of the Royal Irish Academy, to talk about the first few decades of our armed forces' existence. The book opens with the first regular unit of the Irish Army marching through Dublin on the way to Beggar's Bush Barracks. Now, to te- contemporaries, they were still usually referred to as the IRA. Can you describe the transition from the IRA to the Irish Defence Forces? It's a difficult one. The split that happens politically across the country in terms of the opposition or support for the treaty is reflected in the IRA. And in fact, you argue that the majority of the IRA that would have seen out the War of Independence chose to support the anti-treaty side, which puts Richard Mulcahy, who's who's put in place as Minister for uh, Defence and... Michael Collins and those, you know, the, the officers for the Defence Forces puts them in a difficult position. And it's in at the start of February when we see this first real steps towards the what becomes known as the National Army put in place. You see the first public funds put aside for the National Army and also the first payments are issued to personnel in the National Army. But the main point to be made, I suppose, is that there's no real fabric of organisation for this new army other than what already existed with the IRA. So much personnel recruitment is haphazard for the first six months up until June or July of 1922. They're not entirely sure what units they can rely upon. That becomes clearer, of course, as the split within the IRA uh, solidifies after March, after the the convention in the Mansion House in March 1922. Um, So there's enormous problems facing Mulcahy and his officers from a very, very early stage. And it's, I suppose, one of the great challenges of preparations for what becomes a civil war is to try and actually formalise what actually constituted the National Army. In fairness, they do a they do a pretty good job. I mean, one of the things they do is they recruit a lot of World War One veterans, Irish World War One veterans, with combat experience, and then they very very quickly begin a conventional war with an army, the bulk of which, or not the bulk of which, but certainly a, a significant percentage, about fifty percent of of which would only have had experience of guerrilla warfare. That's right. And it's that kind of recruitment, I suppose, very early on. When the when the Civil War breaks out, there's about 7,000 personnel in the National Army at that time. And that number very, very rapidly increases, especially after there's a national call to arms issued in the first week of July, after the battle for Dublin has, has concluded and the National Army has been victorious there. Those recruits, a lot of them have, like you said, First World War experience with the British Army. A lot of those had already been in the IRA already, and a lot of the more senior officers within the IRA had First World War experience. So... To be able to, I suppose, transform what they had into a relatively fit fighting force within a few months was a major organisational challenge and also one that was quite successful. But 
there's also accounts of sending men into battle, particularly for the Battle for Dublin, where they're being shown how to use a rifle in the truck on the way to the forecourts or on the way into the city centre. And that's replicated, I suppose, across the entire civil war. There's no time for training for these men. So you have an army which grows from 7,000 to 55,000 by early 1923 with very, very little training. And that brings its own issues, of course, as well in terms of discipline, but also in terms of combat effectivity. So to be able, I suppose, to have been able to prosecute the war the way they did was a challenge, but one that they relatively successfully met for most of the civil war. During the civil war, the National Army faced the prospect of an interminable costly, protracted conflict against forces skilled in guerrilla tactics, particularly after the end, within about four or five months of the the conventional phase of that war. In response, the state implicitly condoned the use of intimidation and of terror in its efforts to defeat the anti-treaty IRA. Now, your book doesn't shy away from that. It delves into those incidents. I mean, uh, we have had or we've just gone through the 100th anniversary of the horrors of the civil war in Kerry. Just give us some examples of what was countenanced by the National Army during this period. There's a variety of, of things and it, this, I suppose the point to be made as well is that it's it's a political as well as a military decision that this, if you like, this implicit acceptance of, of terror and the use of extrajudicial killings, these are all elements which creep into the conflict from September onwards when the, the emergency powers um, is put in place for the army which legitimises executions. There's obviously formal state executions, but then there's informal extrajudicial killings as well and they happen all across the country. It's very, very, it's very apparent in Kerry in March 1923, Noctegotial, Ballysidi, those atrocities which are happening um, in Noctegotial, you see six National Army troops killed by a trap mine and in response you have 19 anti, anti-treaty prisoners uh, murdered over the following weeks. And I suppose it's worth pointing out as well that in September 1922 you have an incident in Kerry where seven National Army troops were killed by a trap mine as well. And in response you see one anti-treaty prisoner taken out and shot by a member of what was Michael Collins' squad. He probably would have been a member of the Dublin Guards at this stage. And Major Emmett Dalton writes to Mulcahy to say, you need to take the squad out of my area because the men under his command, despite the fact that they'd seen seven of their own colleagues killed in the trap mine, they were disgusted and they were appalled at the actions of this member of, you know, the former member of Michael Collins' squad and they threatened to mutiny if he wasn't removed. So Dalton writes and says, so these issues were in play from September onwards and it's really after Collins' death at Bay on the Blaw and after the anti-treaty area, like you said, adopt the guerrilla tactics that were prevalent in the War of Independence. That's when we see things take a very, very nasty and very sharp turn. When talking about the Civil War and its aftermath, we, we were familiar or more familiar with the National Army, I suppose. What about naval and aerial capacities of the Defence Forces during that time? Because a number of the phases or elements of the conventional war were attacks from sea. That's right. And this is very very apparent in the summer of uh, 1922 when you see the National Army do uh, three or four seaborne landings where they transport troops around the coast on different vessels. That's not yet formally known as the, the Coastal and Marine Service. That's actually established in early 1923, but those are its roots. It's incredibly important in terms of allowing the National Army to outflank the anti-treaty troops and not have to, I suppose, trek across the country in, in difficult circumstances. So they take Westport, they take Fennish, and obviously they take Cork as well. Cork is the main one, landing at Passage West. So there, it, it illustrates, I think, how important a marine service would be to the new state, thinking of fisheries protection in the future, things of like that, anti-smuggling. But 
after a few months, by the middle of 1923, Mulcahy and his senior officers have decided that the, the Coastal Marine Service, which has only just been set up, is too much of an expensive luxury. They don't see it as having as much value as it might have had. And they make the decision by the end of 1923 to actually abolish the Coastal Marine Service, which leaves, uh, leaves the state without any naval capacity until the outbreak of the Second World War, which is, uh, which is again, is an interesting decision for an island nation. It's a slightly different story with the Air Corps. The Army Air Service actually celebrated its 101st anniversary last month. That's kept in place. It's not as effective during the Civil War. It has some utility in terms of aerial spotting of troop movements or for the anti-treaty forces, but it doesn't actually do a huge amount. And it Lost an airplane. Though. Lost an airplane. They uh, <laughs> crash landing in Kerry, uh, if I remember correctly, and the anti-treaty troops had no ability to fly it themselves, so they just burned it. Um, but they survive. The, the Air Corps survives uh, the Civil War, if you like, and they're very. They come very, very close to being abolished in 1924 again on a cost basis. But they do. They are there, and they they have survived, I suppose, for 101 years. Mm. Um, but it, it was quite interesting that the service, the, the one that did the most work, I suppose, the Coastal Service, isn't retained after the Civil War. Reducing then the size. I mean, you talked about a, a, a complement of fifty-five thousand. That's not going to be required in the nineteen twenties in uh, you know quote unquote peacetime Ireland, depending on how peace, how peaceful it was. So reducing the national army in nineteen twenty-four proved to be hugely problematic, didn't it? Very difficult uh, on a number of factors, and I think the the primary, well, obviously, the the size of that force is not going to be needed, as you said, in peacetime. The Department of Finance is very anxious that it should be reduced because the the National Army has cost the state or it's had a budget of about 17.9 million between 1922 and 1923. Now that's reduced to 1 million by the end of the decade. So there's a very, very precipitous decline in terms of the funding that's available for what becomes the Defence Forces. And that's, again, that's that's fair enough to you. It's, it's not needed for that level of expenditure. But the problems it causes is that you have from mid-1923 to March 1924, there's more than 30,000 men demobilised, which causes issues in terms of employment. What jobs are there for them? There are none. Any attempts that are set up by the Minister for Defence, you know, in concert with the Department of Industry and Commerce to find jobs for these people, they're very, they're very ineffective. And you have huge unemployment problems around the country as a result. You also have men who are being demobilised who see themselves as having given the state huge service, not just during the Civil War, but prior to that as well, during the 1916 Rising, during the War of Independence. And they're more than a little bit disgruntled at being set aside. And this mostly comes from the officer corps, a lot of officer corps, some of whom would have been very prominent with Michael Collins. And then as the civil war progressed, are shunted into positions where they they don't have as much power and they don't have as much say in the direction of the National Army. And it's done for a number of reasons. Some of them were operating out of Oriel House as well, which was infamous during the civil war as a place where anti-treaty prisoners were taken, beaten, where a lot of the extrajudicial killings would have originated from. So they're seen as unfit for professional military service and they're shunted aside. And they in early 1923 set up the old IRA organisation. Tobin and Dalton. Tobin and Dalton, exactly. They set up the, the old IRA uh, organisation to, I suppose, put forward the, the, the case that they're being shunted aside unfairly. Now, uh, moving then on into the, into the 1930s, and obviously, as you can tell from the figures that you just came out with, 18 million to 1 million by the end of the, you know, by the, end of the decade, the defence forces are in a pretty poor state when Europe goes to war or, or when Europe is on the brink of war. There's a report that says the state's ability to mount a credible defence of its territory is non-existent. Can you expand on that? Who, who compiles that report? That's Dan Bryan. I think he's a commandant at this stage. He'd go on to be the head of the of intelligence services yeah, during, during the emergency. Well, he compiled his report in 1936. And at this stage, it's, it's very apparent that the, the clouds of war are 
gathering in Europe and there's a, a quest within the Defence Force to figure out how do we prepare for this conflict and how do we prepare for a potential invasion. And what you'd seen throughout the 1920s is just this gradual lessening in importance for the National Army, uh, the Defence Forces, but also in terms of the resources that are being made available to it. Personnel numbers are dropping slowly but steadily from about 14,000 in March 1924 to just over 5,000 in 1931. So that's the lowest number, I think, in in the history of the Defence Forces. Um, So you have a, a situation in place where as Dan Bryan points out, there's no credible threat deterrent here for any kind of invasion whatsoever. The mechanisation of the artillery has been very, very slow. So artillery is still mostly drawn by horses. Um, there's no armoured cars. There's no tank facilities. The Air Corps has obsolete and or aircraft that are unsuitable for the kind of needs. And that was a, a huge problem, I think, for the Air Corps from the mid-1930s onwards. They had no policy in place, no plan. And this is a, a problem from the general staff. And a lot of the issues that the general staff give out about are, are to do with resources and funding. But their own decisions, their own policy decisions occasionally were creating problems for themselves. And the Air Corps was the obvious one because they were buying planes which were suitable for reconnaissance or for bombing runs rather than aerial defence. Mm. Was there a sigh of relief in 1938 and perhaps a degree of astonishment as well when the treaty reports were handed back? I don't think there was ever any question, certainly at the time, that that wouldn't have happened. And it, obviously, it's it's a part of part of the resolution of the economic war as well. And what it does actually for the defence forces, and, and they make the point, is that they don't have the men or the resources to actually man these ports. So mm. they have to; they're being spread even thinner than they would have been at the time. And they're also having to come to to man facilities that they have, but they still don't have a naval service. They don't have anybody who has any experience in manning these kinds of weapons, the kind of long range naval guns that were available in places like Spike Island as well. Now, 1924, 55,000, that goes down to about 13,000 uh, at the, the eve of, the, of World War II. It trebles within about a period of a year or so. Yeah, by, by the summer of 1942, you have two divisions available to the Defence Force. They have about 42,500 men in uniform and they have another 100,000 plus in the local Defence Forces and similar other kind of reserve organisations. And that's, again, we suppose for the second time within 20 years, you have this incredible organisation. What are they armed with, peace shooters? They had managed to secure some weapons and they had managed to procure quite a few from, from Britain. Now, Britain wouldn't supply the Defence Forces with the aircraft that it asked for. It wouldn't supply them with the armoured cars, it wouldn't supply them with the tanks or any of that that kind of equipment. But guns and and ammunition were more readily procured. And in fairness, the Defence Force and the government in late 1938 had realised, the government in particular had realised that there was a major issue here in terms of supply and had begun to, panic buy is not the right word, but they had begun to uh, try to stockpile weapons. Of course, at that stage, the British, who are their main suppliers for all equipment, are starting to cut off supply lines because they realised we're going to need this for ourselves. Uh, one of the areas that I think perhaps was uh, under-researched or has been under-researched in the past and that you bring out here is that it, during the, the Second World War, essentially the Irish army is aligned to and structured like the British army and there is a lot of collaboration despite Ireland's neutrality. Well, there's a policy decision taken very early in 1925 that the Defence Forces would develop along the same lines professionally and, and organisationally and structurally as the British forces. And that's as much to do with politics and geography as it is to do with any other idea that sourcing arms, sourcing equipment from America would be too expensive. Britain were quite willing to be a supplier to the defence forces. So that helps to inform that particular policy. And it means that, as you said, in the Second World War, there's potential there for collaboration. Now, 
the diplomatic situation means that tensions between Ireland and Great Britain, especially after Churchill comes to power in May 1940, the diplomatic relations are at perhaps their lowest ebb for a long time. And that means that collaboration between the Defence Forces and the British Army is relatively relatively low. But in, in the summer of 1940, the British Army and the general staffs of the two forces had set up the 18th Military Mission, um, which was created to coordinate any kind of information exchanges and collaboration between the two forces. That's incredibly important from about late 1941 onwards when the diplomatic tensions between the two E's after America enters the Second World War and you begin to see vast information exchanges and part of that is there's eight very, very lengthy and detailed questionnaires submitted by the British over the course of late 1941 into early 1943 seeking information from the Defence Forces about how well we're disposed, where are our weaknesses, where are our strong points. Some of that information is fudged because we want to conceal some of the weaknesses that we do have but at the same time there's permission given to the British Army to stockpile, for example, 200,000 gallons of petrol in Carton House in case they have to come over the border down the coast and support us in for any German invasion. And it's, I suppose, the level of cooperation that is there is far greater than it would probably has been realised to date so far. One of the things that always disturbed me whenever I saw photographs of Irish army personnel during the Second World War, during what we called the emergency, was the Wehrmacht helmets, the German army helmets. That's right, that's the style, the, the style helmet. That's there until, but they, they get rid of that in 1940. Right. And they they moved to they moved to a, a, a less easily recognised as German helmet, and that it's again that's a cost issue, and it's actually funny because that those helmets are adopted in the late nineteen twenties, and they, they trial a French helmet, and they trial a British helmet, and they trial a German helmet, so they stick with the the German coal scuttle mm. style helmet, and they adopt that in the late nineteen twenties. So a lot of the publicity photos, like you said, you yeah. see. Irish soldiers with German helmets on yeah. their head. They have to get rid of those in 1940. But they were actually manufactured by Vickers in Britain throughout the 1930s. So it's, they're, they're German-style helmets manufactured by the British and worn by, worn by Irish personnel <laughs> up until 1940. They, they definitely would send a shiver down your spine, though. Um, so after then the Second World War, after the, the emergency, I suppose the Irish, the, the Defence Forces then begin to come into their own again in 1958 or thereabouts. And that's associated with the United Nations and Ireland at last being admitted to the United Nations. Yeah, it's a transformational moment for for the Defence Forces because in the same way that the aftermath of the Civil War had seen the Defence Forces just in this precipitous decline, you have the same situation happen after the Second World War and you go from... um, you know, there's, there's an establishment number of 12,500 personnel agreed as being the level. By the mid-1950s, that's dropped down to 10,000. The establishment number hasn't changed, but it's dropped down to about 10,000 and, and even lower by, by the end of the 1950s. So the investments isn't there. And it, despite promises from de Valera that the Defence Forces wouldn't be allowed to wither on the vine, and that's a phrase that's used by a, a chief of staff who recalls being commissioned in the 1950s. He says that the Defence Forces were allowed to wither on the vine in the 1950s. That changes after we joined the UN in 1955 that opens the the possibility of joining this new, I suppose, this new concept of a peacekeeping mission. And when the request comes in in the summer of 1958 for us to join the United Nations Observer Group in the Lebanon or UNIGIL, the Defence Forces jumps at it. So the initial request is for five officers and the one that's, I suppose, best remembered is Justin McCarthy, he, he was on the fast track for UN, UN promotion. He was a particularly competent officer and he was very, very highly regarded. He unfortunately dies in a car crash in 1960, but he was on a very steep rise through the UN ranks. But that at that stage, we had 50 officers 
working with Unigil um, by the end of 1958 and a lot of those are transferred to work with ONUC um, when ONUC is formed in, in 1960 and that's when the Defence Forces really, I suppose, embraces or is asked to embrace the concept of peacekeeping missions. And of course the Congo then is a baptism of fire from uh, from 1958, 1959, 19, well 1960 onwards but the the, uh, the first operation was in was in Lebanon, 1960 is the, the Congo. That, the, yeah the and, and the Lebanon fire. operation I suppose it's, it's very much an observer mission. There are officers there working in, in Lebanon and in Beirut. They're not really involved in, I suppose, what you call frontline action, whereas that changes in, in Congo. And when the request comes in for a battalion, the defence forces, they're a, they're a little bit wary because at this stage there's 8,000 or so personnel in the defence forces, which again is very, very low compared to what the establishment was supposed to be. And the request is for 600 men to go across to. So that's a large proportion. There's a second battalion sent over in August of 1960. So you have two battalions on the ground, two Irish battalions on the ground in Congo by the end of 1960. It's more than 17% of the actual defence forces in total are in Congo. So that puts a huge strain on the defence forces. It means that the units that are sent over, they're not cohesive units. They're not one infantry battalion. They're cobbled together from around the country. That leads to issues in terms of cohesion, that kind of thing. Their equipment isn't great. They're armed with obsolete Second World War rifles. They wear this famous bull's wool uniform that they wear over, which is not in any way suitable for a tropical climate. So in terms of preparation, in terms of those things, the, the Defence Forces are at a bit of a disadvantage, but they're, they're told that this is, this is a, an important part of our, suppose, our, our foreign relations. And that has its own consequences as well. And in terms of, in terms of I suppose, preparation for the kind of action and the kind of um, missions that they would be required to fulfil as, as things go on. And they suffer significant casualties. I think 26 soldiers, not all of them killed, killed in action. And you have these evocative names that remain with us to this day. Niemba, Jadaville. Were, for example, that were the Jadaville soldiers, were they treated very shabbily? Very shabbily afterwards. And it's, it's one of the, I suppose, one of the stains on, on, and one of the black sort of moments for the, for the defence forces, actually, in terms of the way those, those soldiers were treated after they came home. And it's obviously an ongoing and live issue um, um, for them. So... There was a huge misunderstanding in the public, although I think that the general staff were probably much better informed as to the actual nature of the fighting. But the the fact that they held out for as long as they did and were, I suppose, as effective in, in terms of what they were doing was a testament, I suppose, to Pat Quinlan and to the men that he had under his command. I think it was 150 or so. That's in September, September and October of 1961. It's a part of Operation Morthor, which is a, a UN-wide operation to bring Katanga, which is a, a province that's trying to secede from the Congo, back into the Congo itself. And that's, there's other missions happening across uh, Katanga and across Congo as a part of Operation Morthor. It leads into the Battle of the Tunnel and the Battle for Elizabethville in, in late 1961. And 36 Infantry Battalion are dispatched to Congo. I think it's December 1961. And they actually take fire as they're landing. They're the, I think they have the distinction of being the only Irish unit to take fire as they're actually be, being deployed. And they're deployed immediately into a battle zone, including the Battle for the Tunnel, where three Irish personnel were killed during the fighting for that part of Elizabethville. And it's, it's a very intense. And um, they're the first Irish troops to be under fire since the Civil War and it's a very intense period for the Defence Forces and there's a huge amount of I suppose lessons that are learned from it and you mentioned Niemba that Niemba happens at the end of in November 1960 and very soon afterwards you see Irish troops that are deployed are deployed with armoured personnel carriers which they didn't have initially in, uh, when they went over in the summer of 1960 they're deployed with Gustav machine, submachine guns some of them would have had them when they went over in 1960 but it becomes much more common and there's a sense that the defence forces needs to it needs to have sufficient investment to be able to equip its personnel 
properly for these kinds of missions. Um, how does the or how do the defence forces respond to the troubles then, in uh, from 1969 onwards? There's a couple of different factors in that, and you know you have Jack Lynch's famous speech that you know they will not stand by in, in August 1969, and when the troubles begin to you know, the, the situation continues to deteriorate. And in, in February 1970, Jim Gibbons, who's the Minister for Defence, tasks the general staff with coming up with a plan for potential incursions by the Defence Forces into the north to protect Catholic and nationalist populations. And the general staff sends back a report which says, we have limited, we, have, we don't have the combat effectivity to be able to do that. We don't have the personnel, we don't have the resources, and we don't have the weapons required to do that. And what you see then develop over the next two or three years is, I mean, in the immediate aftermath, you have Catholic and nationalist populations streaming across the border into into the Republic um, seeking refuge. They're accommodated in Gormanson Camp and Finner Camp in Donegal and County Meath in Donegal. Um, you also have then Defence Forces personnel deployed to the border. And there there is a lot of, I suppose, rumour that they are actually going to go across the border. That's never a viable political or military uh, option for the Defence Forces or the government at this time. But you do have four infantry groups which are stationed then on the border from 1970 onwards. A bit like in Congo, they're cobbled together, they're drawn together from different parts of the country. So there's, again, a lack of cohesion. And there's an internal report put together in 1971 which says this is a huge problem for us because these guys are being pulled together from different parts of the country. They don't have the training for it and we need to have specific or, or proper infantry groups set up for this, which means in 1973 you have 27th, 28th and 29th infantry battalions formed specifically for border border duties. The presence, the, the Defence Force's presence above... I suppose there's a line above Gormanson and Galway that if you draw a line directly across the country, the only permanent presence they have above that is in Finner Camp. That changes. By the end of the 1970s, there's 11. Um, new barracks are built for the first time in the history of the state, including places like Monaghan. Mm-hmm. So that kind of response is is indicative of the stress and the threat that was being or being sort of um, seen from, from the north. And you also have personnel numbers again. You know, they're indicative of crisis investment in the Defence Forces at different times. You have... Again, you go from 8,000 in 1969 to just under 15,000 by 1977. Mm. Um, now, it's a it's a beautifully produced book, lots of wonderful photographs, and uh, you don't ignore some of the, I suppose, less well-known aspects of the Defence Forces, the School of Music, the Equestrian School, and also the long association between the Defence Forces and the movie industry. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the Defence Forces on the silver screen. Yeah, it's actually, with a book like this, and when you're dealing with a century's worth of history, very often I had to write in fairly broad brushstrokes. But working in military archives, which is which I'm sure you know well, it's an incredible Absolutely. incredible Wonderful. repository, and they have an unbelievable wealth of information there. Mm. And I'd very often find myself going down these rabbit holes <laughs> and going into the details of, of different elements and different parts of, of the Defence Forces. And as I was writing the book, I realised I, I didn't have room for these in the main narrative. So what I wanted to do was come up with these little inserts in between the main chapters where I could talk about those things mm. that you mentioned, like the, the School of Music, the Equestrian School. And one of them is is the Defence Forces on the silver screen. And I was just fascinated by that because when I was, you know, in the 90s when I was a teenager, you would see the FCA on screen with in Braveheart and in Saving Private Ryan. And they're the ones that people think about when they think of the Defence Forces being involved in the movie industry. But actually it's golden age in Hollywood terms is in the 1950s and 1960s. And there's actually a government-wide directive to all parts of the government, all parts of the civil service to facilitate in any way they can any Hollywood studio that comes over and asks for assistance. And the Defence Forces are asked for personnel and men on a regular basis from the mid-1950s right up until the 1970s. So there's this long period, about 17 or 18 years, and you have movies like 
the Blue Max, which is a First World War set, which has the details, the exploits of a, of a German mm. pilot, and that's filmed in and around George Baldano. Peppard, I think. That's exactly yeah, right, yeah, 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 and more well-known to me from the A-Team. But, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. And you have another film called Darling Lily, which has Rock Hudson and uh, Julie Andrews in mm. it, and they're drawn to Ireland for a couple of reasons. One, there's, uh, there's some tax breaks, but also Lynn... Lynn Gardner, I think his, his name was, he was a Canadian stunt pilot. He set up a, or he maintained a fleet of First World War era airplanes uh, in Western Aerodrome down in, in Leakslip. So they're hugely attractive as uh, as props for, for a lot of these movies. Um, so you just have this period and it causes all sorts of issues. It's great in some ways because they, you know, you have personnel getting extra pay and these people are making, uh, the, the studios are making contributions to the Army's Benevolent Fund. So they're funding, you know, um, charitable endeavours. But you also have problems in terms of training and, and the fact that in, for a couple of these movies, I think it's, it's Darling Lily, there's up to a thousand Defence Forces personnel required at different times and it interrupts annual training. In 1967, annual training has to be moved from Fort Dunry to Linan in Galway because that's where the movie requires the men for filming and Sean McGowan who's the chief of staff at the time he writes to the Minister for Defence and says this is hugely problematic I'm sending these men to I think it was it was Unfacip to Cyprus and I can't train them properly and they're going to go be sent abroad and we need to have them available for training and he's told no the directive is to keep the, the, the movie studios the soft, happy The soft power is more important exactly, than the hard yeah. power Yeah. Um, finally you have you've benefited from uh, a number of interviews with uh, soldiers sailors pilots the Military Archives Oral History Project Yeah and, it, and again it was, an, it was an idea that I had when I started out with the book was that we would draw upon that to give you know to, to just have some transcripts and some excerpts from those interviews to give people a sense of the kind of work that the Defence Forces do and, and, and that its personnel have experienced. And as I sat down, I started listening to these and a lot of them are, are compiled by um, Corporal Michael Whelan of the, the Air Corps Museum and, and by Military Archives' own staff, Noah Grothier and, and people like that who, who've done incredible work in terms of bringing these, I suppose, these stories and putting them on tape and preserving them for the future. As I listened to them, I realised these are, there are mine of information, but they also give you this kind of visceral sense of the kind of work that the people are doing that you can't get from a document. You can't mm. get it from any other kind of source. So I trans- uh, we put in a, a larger than I had anticipated section, which would had some of these in it. And, you know, we have Maria O'Donoghue, who was one of the first four women cadets who entered, the, I think, the car in March 1980 for to begin her training. We have Tom Croak, who has this very, very harrowing account of a rescue of an attempted rescue of two boys who were trapped on Paris Court Waterfall and he's flying one of those, you know, iconic Alouette helicopters. At the time, he gives a really interesting account of that. Michael Walt talks about serving overseas with, with Goal um, during the Rwandan massacre and it's, you know, I found that very difficult to listen to because he's talking about the logistics of burying up to 3,000 bodies a day, trying to provide medical attention to children um, and he had his own children at home and at one point he's asked to put a particular type of stitch or a particular type of needle into a child's arm and he says... I don't know how to do this. And the nurse says to him, he's going to die anyway. And he said that really brought her home to him, the gravity of the situation that they were in. And in terms of, I suppose, the, the Defence Force zone, military operations are as part of its its peacekeeping work. The Michael Jones, who's a, a recipient of the Military Medal for Gallantry, he received that at a place called Atiri in, in Lebanon in April 1980. And he just gives an account of the days where there's a, a confrontation between the 
the de facto forces and in Lebanon and the, the UN troops and he talks about what it was like to be serving under fire and the rescue mission that he and, and a colleague did to earn the MMG and it, again it just brings home and he, he at the end towards the end of it he starts to break down a little bit with the emotion of it and again for me listening to it I just hope that the transcripts that we have on the page kind of capture the I suppose the, the stress the strain but also just the the intensity of a lot of the work that these people have done uh, in the past for uh, overseas. It's a tremendous resource and of course it's an ongoing Absolutely, resource yeah. as well. It's still being done, still these interviews are still being recorded. Owen Kinsella, thank you very much for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about your new book, The Irish Defence Forces, 1922 to 2022, Servant of the Nation, published by Four Courts Press.